0: My name, my name is Christopher Lee Cox. My father's name is Timothy Lee Cox. His father is William Gordon Cox. And his father is Ransom Lee Cox. There's a story in there. That's where I started the conversation on Wednesday with a room full Of refugees from the Congo who are students at Withrow High School. They came to Withrow because one of the the benefits of Withrow High School is that it has a great English as a second language program. And this mass movement of refugees a few years ago landed in Cincinnati and families were drawn to the school that could teach them English. Of the 30 students around the circle, only about five were fluent in English as we had a conversation and so they would translate for the rest of the room. And I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience. This felt more like a mission trip to Monterey for me um, and my experiences with the organization I work for with back-to-back where I'm the minority trying to learn the language of the culture that I'm in and yet I'm in a room where Swahili is being spoken around the room and English is this extra thing that we're trying to speak in fragments together. But I had been asked by my friend Joey to tell a story about my name and that everyone in the room was working on constructing a story about their name that they were going to share at an event coming up that was actually going to raise funds in the city to help refugees be able to find stability. I had asked around the room as to the kind of the circumstances of each student that were in there in a a casual way. And, And they were giving some feedback that most of them were living in a space, two bedroom apartments, 11 to 15 people. I thought, okay, so it is what I thought it might be. Interesting. And so we spent the afternoon telling stories about our names and finding these nuggets of good news that were within the story that were really about the names that had been given to us. I finished my story. It only went about three minutes, which is phenomenal, right? Like I can speak for only three minutes. And one of the boys was crying. He didn't speak enough English for us to figure it out. And afterward, Joey came to me and he was like, my mind, like I, it's about to explode because I don't know what triggered that boy's emotion from your story, and we probably will never know, but something you said in a three-minute story was able to trigger emotion from a boy who was about to write a story about his own name. I tell you that because there's so much power in our stories, but there are keys to that power. And the first key is that the story has to be told well in authenticity. We have to be transparent and vulnerable when we tell our stories or else we end up with a manufactured product that the world holds us to. Enter Twitter and Instagram, right? Manufactured stories that don't really reflect what it was like getting ready today, but are just a snapshot of the finished product. Versus the whole thing that might actually draw emotion. From the one who's listening. Transparency and vulnerability is the key for the storyteller, but the key for the story listener, I think, is in this one aspect of story listening, it's the response. Do we respond to stories that are told to us in kindness and gratitude, or do we respond to the stories that are told to us with the one-upping mentality that we've been trained in? Have you ever been one-upped in a story? It's not fun. Someone tells a great story or a, can you believe that just happened to me story? You're not serious. That couldn't be real. And our response or their response to our story is, oh, that reminded me of the time when I, and they one up us and they steal the story. Great stories are never lived out with good news when they're one upped by other great stories. Great stories partner with good news when the listener responds with gratitude and kindness. That's how we knew that the little young man that was emotional was so emotional is that we paused the story after I shared my three minutes about my name. And Joey stopped the session and said, how do we respond to a story? And everyone said... And gratitude and kindness. And so one by one we went around the table, and each student looked at me and said, Thank you for telling me your story. The thing I loved about it the most was. And then I'm the one holding back the emotion. Saying that was in three minutes. That struck you. Three minutes of connectivity can transform a room. An hour of preaching could just bore one to death. Right? There's a difference when we engage in the story. And so I invite you into this space this morning as we tell a couple of stories together, not only to lean in with your posture that we talked about a few weeks ago, not only to empathize with imagination that Kelly reminded us of last week, but also to respond to story, no matter if it's my stories that I tell you or the ones that you hear at lunch or dinner or the ones that you read today. Reply to the story with kindness and gratitude. Thank you for telling me your story. This is something I learned from it. A little dose of that into the relationships that we carry around us could change a lot. Because I haven't stopped thinking about this young man from the Congo. I can't wait to hear his story about his name. Because I'm pretty sure there's good news in there. So I'm named after my grandfather, or my great-grandfather, my last two names, right? So Lee Cox, my great-grandfather, Ransom Lee Cox, skips my grandfather. The story there is that my grandfather was the second son to Ransom Lee, so then he didn't have to carry the Lee name. He got to move on to Gordon. I think I'm good with Lee. And I thought about it yesterday, I even wrote it down. What is Christopher Gordon Cox, if that would have been the thing? But it wasn't, because there was a gap in between Ransom Lee, and then my uncle has Lee and his, or my great uncle, middle name is Lee, and then my father's middle name is Lee, and then my middle name is Lee. And in that story, there's something else that's going on, though, The Lee Coxes in that family had more than just their middle and last names in common. They were also men who worked on the railroad. Their jobs involved trains. So from the time I was birthed into existence, my life involved trains. I had trains, I had conductor hats, I had best friends. Who were imaginary, whose names were the same as my father's friends, who worked on the railroad with him. I was enamored with the world of the railroad. I had a lot of imaginary friends. I only talked about one. His name was Dale, and I called him my man Dale. Right. So I'm from Kentucky, and so you add a little bit of like little twang to that because that's I lost it when I came across the river. That like it went away. But yeah. So I would just walk around and be like, you can't sit there because my man Dale's sitting there, right? Like it was that was me growing up. The world revolved around the railroad. And possibly the world revolved around the railroad for me, because when you walked into our house, you would see this armoire type thing that had a lot of china on it, and in the middle there was a watch, and the watch was a conductor's watch, and there was a story in our house that this watch would sit on this shelf, and it would be handed to the next cox that worked at the railroad. My poor grandfather, like, everything just skipped him, right? Like, he worked for a mill and a funeral home and about a thousand other different weird things, but not the railroad. And so there was never an expectation of my family. I wouldn't paint that picture that my father had these expectations over me that I had to go to the railroad, but I do think that growing up he had this hope that he'd be able to give me the watch. That there was a thing there of, like, I hope he does this because, like, this... It was really cool when my grandpa gave it to me and passing that down. So, in the ripe old age of like eight, I preach my first sermon. And I start feeling this draw to another story a story that's going to involve Bible college. It's a terrible story. Some of you have been there, have half degrees from there, <laughs> right? And I started to feel this calling calling, whatever, I I don't know how we break that down, into a different story. And my parents never brought up the watch, but I would always look at it and think, but if I take this story, I'm giving up that story, and the watch becomes the story of a different family in a different era, in a different generation with a different ending, or maybe my dad just goes like rogue and gives it to one of my sisters because she'll work for the railroad didn't happen. So there's the watch representing the story that my family would write for my middle and last name. And then there was the story I was writing, and it was different. We've been talking about finding the gospel in story. And sometimes finding the gospel in story means looking at the story that you would have had written for you, and then the story that really was written for you, and finding the good news in the in-between. Because most of us, I would guess, have a story that didn't just come out the way we would have scripted it in the beginning. There have been a lot of different changes, a lot of mountains to climb, a lot of valleys, a lot of experiences, a lot of runaway and come home moments. So what happens when our story doesn't end with the watch? What's it look like then? We've been using Jesus' parables to navigate us through the story. And today's parable you'll find in Luke chapter 15. I think it's page 740 in the Blue Bibles if you're using one of those. This might be one of the most utilized parables that we've ever heard, right? Like there are are certain parables that Jesus taught that we reteach and teach over and over and over. It's been labeled the parable of the prodigal son, which is a terrible thing for us. Once it was labeled the parable of the prodigal son, we started to define what this story was about and what the good news would be in this story with words that God did not write and Jesus did not speak. He does not use the word prodigal in the entire story. Prodigal is actually a word for reckless or um, extravagant living. right? So it's the story of the extravagant life or the reckless life. But it's not. Jesus was not telling a story about extravagant life. He was not tally, telling a story about reckless living. We looked at it in a, in a certain time of history where we were talking against extravagant living and we put a title on it. Yours might say the tale of a father and a son, or some, but there's two sons. As I look through this, I'm not sure how you even label this story, except that this is the story about a father. Jesus calls got his father 189 times in the New Testament Jesus wanted to make sure that we knew about father and good news about father in the story and so take a deep breath because some of us in the room go cool makes me think of my dad others of us go crap makes me think of my dad deep breath Because in both circumstances, in this story, the Father overwhelms us with good news. Jesus has the same crowd that he's had for a while around him, a mixture of disciples, prominent women in the community that he's brought into his discipleship community, which was just Completely going rogue on what culture would do. Instead of viewing them as property, he was viewing them as humans equal to the men that he was teaching. Had never been done before. He has former lepers and blind men and women and beggars all around him, and then he has this group of religious leaders. And most of his parables of lostness are spoken to his disciples and the religious leaders that are around. He speaks kingdom and he speaks to religion in both ways. And in kingdom, he speaks to his disciples and says, in this story, I'm going to tell you things that are going to be good news once I'm gone and I resurrect. And you're going to understand, build it off of this. To the religious, he's actually looking and going, I'm going to remind you how bad you have screwed this thing up and you're doing it wrong. And he's speaking to both crowds, and as we read this story, we have to remember that he's speaking both to the crowd that will don the name son, daughter of the father, and the crowd that will say there is no father like that, and that's actually a disgrace. He's speaking to both crowds, and we start In verse 11 it says, And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. First principle of a father is that the father is generous to his son, even when he doubts the son's story. The the father in the parable does not stop and say, Well, let's talk this out. Tell me what your plan is. Give me six steps that you're going to take once I give you this inheritance. Tell me back the cultural values of our family so that we can speak more about this later. He doesn't want to see his PowerPoint presentation. The son comes and if you dig into this story from a first century side, the son comes and says, I need you to pretend that you have passed away and now give me what is yours that will be mine he's the younger of the sons so his older brother is going to get twice as much as him but he doesn't care he just wants his thing now and he's what he is saying is I am unsatisfied in the story of my life I want to go write something new and his father is generous to him from the beginning instead of holding back and saying you can have it when I'm dead or out of my cold dead hands you can take this inheritance or go ask your brother because it's going to be his and you're going to actually be under him in the hierarchy instead he gives it to him generously. It actually references to the Pharisees. They would go, this is Jacob and Esau. A man had two sons, and the younger son came, and he wanted what was his, and he was going to do whatever it took to take it. They're going to go Jacob and Esau's story. Older brother gets stolen from. Older brother gets angry. Older brother doesn't take care of his stuff. That's where they're going. But Jesus is going to the father, and he says, and so the father gives it to him. He gives generously to us even when we're not ready, even when we might break stuff, even when we might hurt people. The father gives generously because he's the father. As the story goes, not too long later, the younger brother takes all of his stuff and it says that he goes to a faraway country. Pharisees' heads are ringing at this point in a faraway country means that he is not living under the authority of Jewish leadership. He's entered into another space, says he's living recklessly. Some translations would say that he's hooking up with a lot of girls. Other translations would say that he is just living an extravagant life because his, his money's just not going to last. That they're, they're not saying that he's living a crazy life. They're saying he's just living beyond his means, Right? He's spending more than he makes a month and it's going to run out. And then the story says that his money was running out, all of his resources are running out, and the famine comes to the land. So, and crisis comes and meets him in a space that it wasn't just his fault. So it was one of those scenarios that oftentimes we shame ourselves into being this younger brother and saying, I screwed everything up, I messed everything up. Circumstances entered as well. I'm living extravagantly, and the circumstances that came, I could not sustain. And so he ends up partnering with, it says, a citizen of the community. And he ends up working on a pig farm. Pharisees' brains have exploded at this point. A Jewish man is touching swine. And they don't dig on swine. For those of you who like Pulp Fiction, there you go. And they look and say, you cannot touch this. This is an unclean animal. Not only is he taking care of them, but at some point he's so desperately hungry that he looks at what they're eating and says, I don't think I should eat the pig. I should eat what the pig's eating because I'm just hungry. So he thinks he's lost his value as a son. He's spent it all. His heir to his family is gone. He's undignified himself by sitting in slop with animals and he's desperately hungry and he comes to his senses is what the Greek says he comes to his senses he wakes up he wants his story to be different and as he awakens he says even my father treats his servants better than this citizen treats me it's interesting in the story. It doesn't look like the citizen was trying to treat him bad. It looks like this younger brother actually had just clung to the citizen, like he wouldn't go away. He was like a gnat, like you just keep trying to. So he was just hanging around because the citizen, from the beginning, had said, "I don't, I don't need you, and I don't want you here." But he had had so much pity on him at the end and said, "Fine, you can go, just hang out with the pigs, just leave me alone." He was that desperate, that desperate, that he was begging to the point of knocking on someone's door every day, saying, "Can I mow your yard? Can I mow your yard? Can I mow your yard? Can I mow your yard?" And he doesn't find desperation in that. It's not until he's about to eat the slop of an animal that he says, wait, my father treats people better than this. I should go back there and work for him. And on the journey back, I'm sure he's overwhelmed with the guilt, the loss, the frustration, the anger that he has with himself. And he's not sure what that face is going to look like on his father. And we pick up the text in verse 20, and it says, And he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The story shifts back to the father and reminds us that a father the father, this father, will undignify himself to save his children's dignity. When he was a long way off, I used to read that as if it was like a a path on a farm. I, as I mentioned, I grew up in Kentucky, so most preachers in Kentucky preach the prodigal son as if like this man owned a farm. And when he's a long way off, you have the path, and you have the tractor, and you have the dad, and then the son is walking in here. But then you move to a city, and then you start to frame this conversation within a city context and think about vine street on a saturday afternoon and pig boy is coming back to meet the guy who owns all the property right he feeds us the food from the eagle yum and bakersfield let's do that one yeah let's all go and he stands and sees before anyone else notices his son who was wearing the same clothes he wore when he left because he didn't want to spend money on clothes. He wanted to spend money on other stuff and sell it all. And he's tattered and broken and he's at the end. But the problem is in that it's not just, you know, Vine Street because that would work out well for us because everyone would be consuming the Vine Street beverages and they would not even notice the guy. But the Pharisees are there. So as Jesus is telling the story, he's saying, imagine the village where not only are the others who work for me going to step out, but the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who judge everything and are looking to find judgment because they believe that's their job. They're coming out to the street too, and the boy is standing at the end of the road. And the only way that the father knows to get the attention off of his boy so that his boy can come home is to gird up his robe and run which men did not run then. It was a dishonoring action in first century Judaism for a man to run anywhere. You made your servants run. You make your camels run. You can make a donkey try to run, but you don't run. We run in the Olympics. We don't run as dads, especially the patriarch of the family. The patriarch does not run. He waits until the son comes to him. And kisses his feet and then he decides whether or not he's going to accept him. But this father looked and thought the only way that he does not get shamed and disrespected is if I go to my boy. And he got up and it says that he ran. So he ran through the village. The Pharisees with stones in hand, legally would have been allowed to, have to drop them because they're not going to throw a stone at the patriarch of the family and the community going through. And so now everyone in the village, instead of talking about the boy who came home, they're talking about the backside of the king, right? (laughs) Did you see his underwear? That was gross. What is an ephod anyway? You can look that up later. But that's what he was wearing. And they're weird. I'm glad we don't wear them anymore. They started talking about the father. The village would whisper shame about the father. They would whisper that, this story. Can you believe he gave away his kingdom and now he's running half naked through the street? What kind of house is this man running? He gives away all his stuff to his boy and then he runs through the town naked. Who is that guy? And the father is saying, I'll take it. You can say whatever you want about me. I got to protect my boy so that he can come home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. The kiss of the father forgives the son. You don't kiss someone on the cheek that you're welcoming home as a servant. He would be offering the kiss of peace that was offering forgiveness and reconciliation. So he runs through the town saying, I will be undignified. Look at me. Don't look at him. And then he gets to the end of the town and before his son can even utter a word, he embraces him and kisses him. So his son does not have to ask, do you forgive me? The father simply says, you are forgiven. Here is my kiss. And welcomes him back. In an act of forgiveness. And it's an invitation for us. One. That if we're standing at the end of the road. To let him run to us. So that we don't carry any shame. Any farther than we ever have to. And two. So that we know that it's his kiss. That brings forgiveness. Not ours. Because sometimes we want to go back. And kiss the father. And believe that that will forgive us. But it's the father's kiss. brings forgiveness to his son. And yet it also reminds me that there are probably some people at the end of the town in my life that I could be undignified for too so that they would stop feeling the shame that they're carrying. Maybe it's my turn to run. And maybe the kiss of forgiveness is so simple in this story because it's An invitation to the kingdom that is the good news to say that those who have offended us do not have to go through this process of reconciliation and fix what they have broken. We can offer a kiss of forgiveness without demanding them to be stoned through the street. Maybe the Father's inviting us to learn what this looks like too. Then it says... And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. He sends the servant to get the robe so that when his son walks through the street, his son is dressed as an heir to the family, not dressed as a pig boy. And he gets the robe. And imagine this moment. The father gets the robe and he reaches around his son. And he puts the robe on his son. And he begins to walk him through the street in his arms. Because a good father protects his son when he can't protect himself. And he says, if they're going to throw a stone at you because of what you've done, they have to hit me first. If they're going to shame you, then they're going to shame our family's name. Because you're wearing my robe. The best robe. The patriarch robe. You're going to walk through dressed like me. Because no one is allowed to throw a stone at you. They would have to hit me first. And the father walks his son through the village in a way from judgment, And then it says that he places the ring on his finger. In that time, the ring would be noticed. Like we use rings like as marriage, right? Like I'm in a covenant relationship. There would be a family ring that would be worn to illustrate I am the son of whoever. And you would go from town to town and you could show if you needed to prove who you were and what your status was. You could show your father's ring. And if you showed your father's ring, then someone had to say, you're right, I have to back off. I don't really want to mess with that clan or that community or that tribe. This is the full restoration as his heir. That when he hands him the ring, he says, you're not home as a servant. You're not home as a friend. You're not home because I have to because I'm your dad. You're home because I want to. And you are my son. And I love you. And he resets him as heir to the kingdom. And then we have this part of the story that it shifts as the celebration begins. And they kill the fatted calf. They like talking about the fatted calf several times during the story. They're like, fatted calf, fatted calf, right? So um, Chick-fil-A loves this story. Um, not at all, Um, and they go throw a party, but what's happening in this other brother is something interesting, because when the father separated the kingdom and said, go young son and leave, he would have given the other part to his son, and his son now becomes the manager of all of the kingdom, The father gets to participate as much as he wants to until death, but he really has surrendered his kingdom to his sons at that point. Legally, he has surrendered it to it, but he has a right to give it away. So imagine that tension. You've handed the family business over to your son, and yet you keep giving away his money. Tension, right? Like that's going to be stressful, Or imagine that you're flipped, right? Like your dad gives it to you, and then he comes in and says, oh, by the way today, we're down five cows. Are you kidding me? I just made a deal to give those five cows for seven camels. Well, they're dead. We ate them last night because your brother's back. The older brother had this righteous anger this piety that was inside of him of saying I'm now the manager I get to do this business I've learned this business and I've hated it from the beginning he says this to his father he looks at his father and says I've acted like a slave for you ever since I was a little boy doing everything that you wanted and then you just welcome him back in if the story was about the older brother then we start to like judge the church and do things and I don't think that's what Jesus was really talking about here I actually think he was looking at Pharisees When he said this about the older brother and he was looking at it through the lens of the father and he says, I will celebrate my son in the presence of the pious because you will see that sonship always trumps piety. You can't be good enough to be my kid. You are my kid. Go be as good as you can. The father was saying I hear you but you're trying to work yourself into my presence I need you to know you can't work yourself out of it I'm just going to be your father and if your brother spends the rest of our kingdom I'll still be his father and if you manage it poorly I'll still be your father You have to decide, do you want the presence of the father or do you want the proof of the pious? Because the older son said, I just need to prove it and we need to write all this stuff down and I need rules. And the father said, look, you're always with me. Everything I have is already yours. I already gave it to you. This is all yours. Enjoy it all. Live it up. Manage it well be a leader, but your brother was dead. How is that not more important than that cow that we just ate? When the father sees that presence trumps the rules and the religion and the regulation, he undignifies himself to protect his son. He forgives his son with a kiss without words needing to be spoken. He protects his son from the stones that could be thrown at him. He puts the ring on his daughter's finger when she runs away. And he throws parties when we come home And when we live out the story that he's invited us into. It was about five years ago. It was Christmas. I'd been a minister for 13, 14 years at that point. Never made it on the railroad. We tried. There was one summer we almost did an internship there, but I chose to work at Abercrombie instead. My bad. There was always this lingering thing for me whenever I would visit home. What if I had just gone down this path? Should I have followed the Leacock story? Would it have been more honoring to my father? Because I don't know who he's going to give that watch to. Have you seen the railroad? I don't know. What's happening? And there was shame that I had written on myself. No one had given it to me. That I was the son who ran away. Because I don't think it always has to be, I'm running away to extravagance or prostitution or chaos sometimes it's just running away from what we think the expectations are of ourselves that cause us to relate to the son in the story because we don't know that we can live up to it or we don't know that that's our story and so on this Christmas I sat down on a couch it was right after my grandfather had passed away and I opened a box and there it was. Because sometimes the father changes the story so that we can recognize our name. That's good news. Be undignified this week while you run through Some stuff to take attention away from those who are really hurting. Offer forgiveness without a word needing to be spoken so that someone can come home. Wrap a robe around a friend so that if someone needs to throw something at them, they have to hit you first. First. all family what it is whether it's connected by blood or by relationship or by commitment to one another and say I'm in if you're in let's do this together and then throw parties throw parties when we're together that's our good news and I think about that every time I look on my shelf now and see this watch because my dad changed the story of what was expected for it to sit at your house. So who knows? You can end up at one of my little girl's houses someday. Because it's about being present with the Father. Not about doing the stuff that proves you're in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this story of a father and his children. And even now I think of how, how it transformed me when I wrote it down on a piece of paper and it was a father and his daughters. And I thank you that these parables, these stories, speak not to gender, but to family and how you view it and to Jesus. Jesus. And to who you are as you walked through and took the beating and the brokenness so that we could come home and so that we could invite others to come home with us. And so we respond to you and your story with gratitude and kindness. And I tell you that my favorite part is the place where the father runs to his son. Because I know that that's you running to me. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.